Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 127. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we got reviews coming in like crazy right now. People want to mm-hmm. see Nate get in the lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going to be lovely. It's going to be cold. I don't know if, as I think about it, Josh, I'm not sure. We're going to have to hire someone to go watch him get in the lake because it's going to be too cold for us to stand on the shore, I think. I think so. The wind blowing. Man, it, that wind blows. Oh, it was blowing. We did post a video on our LinkedIn page. Nate will link to that in the show notes. Southerners are pansies. <laughs> well, maybe so. But speaking of which, we did get a lot of reviews. We should note to the listeners two things, Josh. One, we were co- recording this on Thursday. It will come out on normal time. So this is uh, October the... 24th we usually record on monday so any stories that we missed is because of i will be at the bush china conference next week and um then the next week of that i'll be at nicaragua then i'll be in china uh i should let the listeners know that nate and josh are actively actively conspiring against me much like when the great Kyle ripkin broke his streak um there were some people who stood and applauded the true iron man of the sport and how he dedicated himself but there were some naysayers. There were some conspiracy theorists. There was a lot of people coming out of the woodwork saying that, you know, that Cal didn't, you know, he, the famous outage and stuff like that. Um, so if you hear some bad things while I'm gone to China, um, know that I'm here representing our country, trying to get a trade deal done and uh, make America, is it great again? What, what's the campaign slogan this year? I don't even know. I uh, make America greater this time. Greater this time? Know. Okay. Okay. Keep I'm just America going. Great. Keep America great. Keep America great. I'm going to get things done. That's what I'm going to do. Get things done. That's my motto. Make America profitable again. Make America profitable again. <laughs> so while you're being actively conspired against. Exactly. So just for the listeners, if they they badmouth me too much, just you know take my side. I won't complain. I won't complain when I come back. I'm just saying, we do have a lot of reviews, Josh. We're up to 174 five star reviews. The magic number now is at 26. Like baseball, uh, 26 is where we need to be. We don't want what we don't want is 46, right? Is it 46 is the, the no-go number? Uh, no, you'd actually, you're giving them... Oh, that'd be a wonderful leeway. number to catch. 51. 51, whatever it is, 26. If we can get 26 exact reviews, that'd be perfect. Also, a couple things. we got some stickers coming in. So if you left a rating review, we have 100 stickers. The first 100 people will take a screenshot of their rating and review. We don't know who sent what. Um, and send it to ryan at goar2.com. That's my email. We'll be sure when those stickers come in to get you out a sticker for leaving us a five-star review. Again, we only have 100. So it doesn't matter when you left it. Uh, if you have proof that you left a rating and a review, um, then we'll be happy to send you a sticker when they come in. Okay, let's get the reviews i don't think we read this one last week but if we did it will you'll get two shout outs great show five star from chris v i look forward to to listening about current oil field events and guests from across the industry get thee to the icy drink nate well said sir well said terribly said this is from berkeley one six informative fun and thought provoking I appreciate you got what you guys are doing here. It's refreshing to sit back and listen to the industry news in a conversational manner. Keep up the good work, and we'll be and we'll, we'll be by the channel. Also, Nate is going into the lake. That's from last week's guest, Ross Wiggum. Thank you, Ross. Uh, Kurt Sim, 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 S E M, Sim. Is that Sim? I can't speak English. Yeah, Sim. Okay, Sim. Great podcast, five stars. I appreciate all the up to date news and Texas on gas. Ryan and Josh do a great job of having do a great job and have great guests. Ryan, your rants are justified. Thank you, Kurt. Keep them coming. Let's get Nate swimming. 
Thanks for the great show. Once again, these are... Okay, so there I need to ask a question. Are these the rants about politicians or the rants about me? Because I I totally agree with him on one count. (laughs) Totally disagree on the other. It's just like my complaining. We're not exactly sure what they're talking about. Uh, The last one comes in. Polar Bear Plunge Idea, five stars. This might be the smartest review we've ever had. Great show. Uh, This is from Geometry Genius. uh, Great show. Look forward to this each and every week on my long drives around the Permian. Just a thought, though. And a great thought on my dad. Do the plunge at Nape in the pond in front of the George R. Brown. Might not be as cold, but just as humiliating. Thanks, guys. He de-emphasized the humiliating because he didn't want Nate to realize how many people would be there to see him instead of us three. That's a terrible idea. But once again, so we had we kind of had a wave a few weeks ago, guys, of the Josh listeners that were coming out, and you know, like Reed Goodman and some of those folks. We're starting to see the the true intellectuals, my listeners, my fans, that are coming out and supporting these great ideas and kind of the great comments. So one seventy four is the magic number. I mean, sorry, twenty six is the magic number. You want a 52 is the magic number, 52. actually. We want 52 <laughs> if we get reviews. get to 225, Josh and I will join Nate, but our listeners don't hate us that much. We might have some shirts coming along the way. And we, we said this last week's show. I know some people turned it off, but thank you guys. We crossed the 150,000 downloaded episode, um, uh, 150,000 downloads last or two episodes ago. And so thank you guys. Josh and I started this a couple years ago now. And uh, so the show has really grown. And so we really appreciate all you listeners. And thank you so much for um, you know, being involved putting Nate in the lake and uh, and listening to my complaints and Josh's being the, the ballast for the ship. I still ha- I still haven't got over that. And the adult in the room. And, well, come work one day here. Just come work one day here and see if Josh is the adult in the room. That's all i got to say. I'm not saying that I am. I'm just saying just come and see if Josh is the adult in the room. You ask for too much, Ryan. Half a day would do it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, last week, Ryan, we mentioned uh, the Carlisle Group um, and and – there was news that came out that they were quitting their one billion dollar um, export project, and and so we were curious. I, you know, I put a post on LinkedIn. I was doing some research on this, how that was going to affect the Trafigura uh, that deal that they were working on in the port, and so I did some research into it today, Ryan. I think Nate was uh, was helping out, and yep. so there's some you know lots of news have been has actually been developing on this story for the last week. Uh, so, Ryan, what can you tell us that, that we found out here just in the last couple of hours? I feel like we should have some breaking news. We don't really break news. I mean, Sergio steals our ideas and stuff and then acts like he broke the news. But that aside, this is a complicated story. And, and so let's kind of backtrack. You know, we have said for however long we've talked about this topic. We're fans of the port. We want the port to succeed. We want the port to you know be able to get out our product and sell it around the world or bring in products as needed. Um, and if you remember, we had on Sean Strawbridge after the hurricane to talk about the impact of the port. But then, Josh, things have kind of changed. There was um, a little battle down there for who was going to get this project done. And there's been what, two or three groups now: Trafigura, these guys, and one other guy, maybe uh, maybe two other groups. Anyways, that have kind of battled and jockeyed for position. And we we said on the show um, at the time that we felt like um, at least the, the the remarks from the port were disappointing because they were upset with Trafigura and some crazy oil transfer from 1993 or something like that, and didn't bring up the fact that they take their products day and night every day. So they kind of left that out. So that was disappointing. And I don't remember what we said on the tape, so what I've, so we had to go back and pull that up. But I think of the, at least so we had some discussion, at least offline, that it felt like maybe they were big enough to get the project done. Um, they could kind of threaten to do their own thing, and then eventually um, they could eventually come back and 
maybe partner with the port. So I don't know if that's where this is coming, but this story is quite fascinating because there was a lawsuit filed. We were sent in a secret tip about the lawsuit that came in, and the lawsuit did not mince words, to put it mildly. They, they, um, the, um, the folks over at Barry were not very happy with the Carlisle group. Nate, I know you were kind of kind of skimming this thing yeah. here. They made some basically they they accused the Carlisle group of entering the contract in, in bad faith. It sounded like like, like they, the, their accusation was you items twenty and twenty one defendants fraudulently induced plaintiffs to enter into the term sheet agreement that is the contract with no intention of honoring their obligations under the term sheet agreement. Pretty damning. 21, defendants fraudulently induced plaintiffs to enter into an exclusive relationship with defendants relating to the project with no intention of honoring their obligations under that relationship. So with that being said, after we got this in, um, we reached out to everyone involved that we could get a hold of. So the Port of Corpus Christi, the Berry Group, and the Carlisle Group. And, and, and the involved lawyers. And the involved lawyers. And so Nate was working hard on that. To be fair, we, we had a short deadline. We got this uh, lawsuit in about an hour and a half before recording, so or two hours before recording. So we didn't have a lot of time, but we tried to reach out and be as fair as we could. And if they come back and send note, we will be happy to uh, read that um, when we do that. But what we found out was this lawsuit, was, which was filed on October 7th, has now been – this seems like it's a point of contention here, Nate. So let's go to what the Carlisle group said, and then we have a report from another group on what they said happened. So kind of break down the, the, the words and the wording, and then we'll go from there. Yep. Um, so from the Carlisle group, we have two pieces of information. Carlisle spokesman told me today that uh, the Barry group and the Carlisle group have dissolved their relationship regarding the project to develop a hydrocarbon export terminal on Harbor Island, Corpus Christi, Texas. The Barry group is now the sole owner of Lone Star Ports LLC, that is the LLC formed for the project. The Barry Group and Lone Star Ports have indicated that they are actively continuing to develop the project. Carlisle wishes the Barry Group success with the project. They further note that the lawsuit over that said um, project was dismissed. Now, we thought it was withdrawn voluntarily. In fact, it is a voluntary dismissal. According to the county clerk of Harris County, where the, uh, where the suit was filed, the civil uh, suit was disposed final under an order of non-suit signed. Um, our lawyer friends can probably help us figure yeah. out what exactly that means. Yeah, so I would love for, for the lawyers to kind of, we've read you, the Carlisle group, thank you for responding. And to other group, two groups, we do understand it was a very short time. We tried our best to get with them, and uh, maybe they will decide to respond, and if not, whatever. But um, I, I'm not sure, so I'm, I'm still not sure why it was dissolved, um, and we might never actually know. It could be a deal where, you know, a, a lawyer could email in and say, well, it could be that they were some kind of buyout, or it could be that, you know, maybe the countersuit was going to be filed, you know, or maybe they... Some judge looked at it and said, you don't have a shot here. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a lawyer. This is entertainment purposes only, obviously. Um, but it was fascinating because it kind of developed. We, we saw this on Saturday, I think, Friday or Saturday, this news come out. And it's like, oh, wow, this is pretty big news. And then we were sent this, This um, we obtained a copy of this uh, this legal case. We're like, oh, my gracious, I didn't know about this. Because this actually, for the best we could tell, this predated the news as it at least were coming out. It was filed on, October 7th. Right. But then by the time we dug into it more, it 
that had already been uh, gone away. So yeah. I think the question, Josh, for me is, is what happens now? Because why did the Carlisle Group pull out? This seemed to be the Port of Corpus Christi is vital to the textile and gas industry moving forward, it seems. Um, it seems like this was a project that, you know, they've been talking about for a while and they want to get done. It felt like that they had uh, the Carlisle Group coming in uh, with the Bear Group and we're going to get this thing done. But then you had the Trafigura folks out there who were kind of going to do their own deal and uh, the port kind of thumbed their nose at them. I- I'm wondering if we will see the port come back and change their position um, w- with Trafigura um, or, you know, if the Bear Group, I don't know exactly um, the logistics on who can strike what deal here, but I wonder if you will see those guys come back and then we'll see a continuation of this project because I did read somewhere, I don't have it in front of me, that the port, that the project is theoretically still ongoing is from what, I said, what, yeah, what I've read. Yeah, it's continued under the auspices of Lone Star Ports and right, the Bear Group. But it felt like Lone Star was dependent on Carlisle, so I would assume that we, we should be looking for uh, the very group slash Lone Star to go find a new partner or maybe this thing will shut down. So um, it, it's fascinating because it felt like we went from, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. We talked about on the show and then all of a sudden all these people jump in and then now you see the first one at least uh, that I can think of is, is pulled out of it. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I mean, it, it seems that they, they're going to have to replace the, the billion-dollar investment from the Carlisle Group in order to be able to fund this. I know they had some government funding, but there was some additional funding needed uh, for them to to complete this project, so yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see it. Uh, the, the demand is there for for the the port, and and opportunities are there. So I don't think that the Carlisle Group would have would have withdrawn because of opportunities. I mean, it's there. You would think right. You would think so. So you would think that when they sat down, they kind of had a number and the predictions, and nothing has drastically changed the market. That, I'm, that I can think of, and listeners, let us know if you know something that we don't know, um, you know, LinkedIn or textualguestpodcast.com. But you would think that this was something that you're, it's a long-term deal. It's not like you can go out and build a house in six months. This is going to be, you know, multi-year deal, long-term contracts, all that and all that's going on. And for it to fall apart, it makes you feel like um, there's something else. Now, Dean Foreman um, was not actually speculating on why this fell apart. He did make a comment on Energy Week that, generally speaking, these permits can be very hard to obtain. So it might have been something where they felt like they had an inside track on a permit and that fell through. Um, it, but, but to your point, Josh, it does make you wonder, it doesn't feel like the business is, is, less, in, uh, is less viable, but maybe they got in there and maybe they did find something like, well, the Trafigura deal is going to be better or, or whatever it might be, that it is less profitable. So it's going to be um, something that we'll follow along. And um, curious to listen to ourselves. It was really surprising. I felt like um, when this came together and they kind of thumbed their nose at Trafigura, that you would, you know, this might be the one that gets it, but maybe the uh, the folks at Trafigura, they're giving high fives and, <laughs> you know, the port, if they come back in, I guess they're going to issue an apology. Like, how, how do you go from basically calling them war criminals for, they didn't call them war criminals, but they said that they traded, I think it was Iraqi oil during the war and, you know, they lost in some uh, universal court or, you know, international court. And so, to come back now, of course, I thought that was a hypocritical statement then, but to come back now, you know, take it, it's like, oh, well, what, what happened to all that? So it'd be interesting to see how all those dynamics played out. would love to hear the listener's thoughts on this. This is a very complicated issue, and uh, I'm not sure where it's going to go at this point. It feels like something will get done. Um, will it be a continuation of one of these three projects, or will you might see some of these deals collapse and um, something new come from it? Well, there's a, uh, a 
a conference going on in Dallas, a uh, and conference, and, and there's some information from Heart Energy. They're the ones actually putting on this conference. And so uh, the, the guy kicks off this conference by saying that the old days are over. He talks about some of these companies that are going in and, and uh, buying um, – getting getting these wells up producing and then flipping for for a profit that those days are over and so these companies are having to learn how to live within cash flow and so from the public investor standpoint uh there's just not a lot of money going into these smaller companies to go in and 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 start up you know 250 million dollar private equity company to uh, to go in and, and drill. So with that, uh, a lot of these PE companies, NGP is, is commented um, in, the, in the article, they're looking for different ways to invest into the oil and gas industry. They're not necessarily following those traditional lines anymore. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these private equity companies, how they approach the industry for the next couple of years uh, while the, the industry responds to these lack of uh, returns. So this is, I think, one of the fundamental problems of having the stock market and quarterly reporting. Um, So is there problems with how the oil and gas industry does things? Do they do things the most efficient way always? No, there's, there's, you know, we can not, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, put lipstick on a pig per se. But also, if you stop and you think, what's going on here? The industry is trying to make a hard turn mid-stroke, right? They're trying to turn a big old ship. And it's not, when we say the industry, we talk about this a lot, it's not one company. One large company trying to turn is even hard enough. It's multiple companies that are all trying to adjust to this new thing. And there's a lot of pessimism in the market, Josh. And I, I just, you know, I just am not sure. I think there's times when you have to be concerned about where things are heading. But right now, um, and maybe I'm the, just, just the, the buffoon in the room here, but it just feels like, okay, today things aren't great as they could be. They're not, they're not perfect. And, yes, there are problems. And, yes, there are companies who have problems. We've talked about that over and over again about bad quarters, bad years. You know, you get an F on a test or two Fs on a test, it could fail you. So they're, they're, those are all realities. However, the rig count is falling. The production level will go down. The price has to come up. It has to come up unless you're going to envision uh, the demand for oil to, you know, uh, level off or slow down, decline, and OPEC to pick up the slack. Um, now, there's a big debate over how much spare capacity OPEC actually has to ramp up to. So that's so when we hear these things, I, I, it's like, okay, I understand that today when we're looking at this, I understand that if you're um, if you're the the CEO of one of these companies, that th- your reality is this is a bad spot. But for our listeners, I think that, and it doesn't mean that we won't have listeners. We talked about layoffs, and those are terrible. So it doesn't mean that there won't be some hard times for some people. But again, I, I think if you look into next year, it's hard to imagine the price doesn't go up. Now, I made a prediction on the price one time, and I got it terribly wrong. So I don't like, I don't do that anymore. But I, I will say, I feel like the price has to go up. How high will it go up? Will it be sixty-five? Will it be seventy-five? You know, I, I have no idea. We did read a report this week in our office from Raymond James, who speculated the price range next year. This is Raymond James, not not Texan Guest Podcast, from ninety-three to seventy, seventy-two, something like that. Seventy-two. Yeah. yeah so that's what they're expecting next year. Now. 
it didn't break down when they expected the 70 versus the 93. So I don't know if that's a they expect a high price early and then it gets drilled down later in the year. They didn't break that down. But if you start looking at kind of some of the metrics that they're looking at, some of the same things we're saying here, that the production level goes down. These are just very simpleton. Someone calls a simpleton. That, that's very true. These are very simpleton simpleton ways to look at the market, but they're also, also often overlooked. The other thing about Raymond James I said was it would take 1,400, 1,400 wells at this point um, to fill all of the pipeline's spare capacity. And they said there's no indication that the, that the operators have shut in that many wells. So there's no reason to believe, therefore, that there's 1,400 wells that can come on to flood this, right? Mm-hmm. So you look at that and say, okay, well, spare capacity means improve, improved profitability potentially for operators. So you look at it you go, well, it, it feels like it's right. And I, I hear these messages, and again, from the perspective of the person, I understand that their company might be in a bad spot and someone else's company might be in a good spot. So I think that's how we have to read this news. But if you look at just kind of the fundamentals of the market, the fundamentals of the market, rig count's going down. Production has to go down. Even if all the ducks in the world that are they say are out there, even if they all come on, eventually those will go down too. It has to go down. And if the ducks do come on, the price will stay soft, so the rig count won't go up. So eventually that will come down. Now, is that March, April, May, June? I don't know. Uh, and no one really knows. But then the price has to come up. So then do you have that lingering fear of the price coming up in, we'll say, August of next year to 70, and then the, the producers drill it back down? That's, you know, if you want to be fearful of that, I think that's fine. Um, so I think when we look at this, I think the industry is in a good spot. I think it's in a spot that's um, it's going to be changing. And there's a lot of conversation right now is about has the, has the Permian peaked? You're starting to see that narrative. Has it peaked? And so I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this because I was kind of toying around some ideas. I don't know how many producers there are on the permit right now, but let's just throw out a number. Let's just say 200, just to throw out something. Count all the little guys. If it goes from 200 to 20, what happens is instead of having 200 varying interests, varying degrees of capital, varying degrees of business mindset, you have 20. And those 20 are more likely going to be similar than they are different. Whereas, like, right now you might have some PE-backed company who is not doing very well and they don't have the management team. Whereas if you had 20, the presumption would be you'd have a lot more companies like Exxon or Chevron or, you know, Oxy. They can really figure out how to do this and do multiple phases. If you have 20 companies, it's more likely than not that the price would actually stay consistent. Because now you have companies who are out there, and, you know, Josh is out here, and he looks at me, and he goes, you know what? If I can keep the price at 52, Ryan can't sustain there, so I'm going to do my part to make sure it stays 52. Ryan's going to go out of business. Well, Exxon and Shell and Chevron and, you know, ConocoPhillips or whoever you want to say, those big boys, they know they can't do that with each other. That's just not the positions they're in. But right now you have a lot of dispar- uh, disparity in the workplace, in the, not the workplace, in the, in, the, in, the oil, in the oil patch. And so... As there becomes fewer companies, it feels like there actually will be stability brought to the market. And, you know, if OPEC had a shortage or whatnot, then you could talk about how much a swing producer we could be. But do you see, guys see what I'm saying? And do you, do you agree with that sentiment in general? Because it feels like if there are less producers, there could be the same amount of work, but the price actually stays consistent because there's less uh, differing motivating facts on, what, uh, on who is doing what. Yeah, it seems that way to me, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is the bigger companies have the ability to respond in more thoughtful ways. Uh, the smaller companies have to drill to survive, whereas these companies, um, they can they can respond to the market. And, and so if prices begin to drop, they can slow drilling down and, and vice versa. You know, they, they can respond, I think, better to the market. 
Uh, one of the things you mentioned, Ron, that's interesting to me is in here at the NGP, the comment I, I referred to earlier, he, he said his firm has $4.3 billion to invest, and he expects to shift more capital into midstream and minerals and away from the traditional mix. Now, what I'm wondering is, is with the Raymond James, if it would take 1,400 more wells to fill these, uh, these pipelines, is that going to be a smart move for the capital to go into the midstream? And I know they're smaller stuff, you know, not the, the big lines that, that Raymond James is probably referring to, but it still seems that even the investment into the midstream side, um, if it's not even at capacity now, um, of, of how that's going to play out. So, it, it, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different things to consider with, with the viability of, you know, the, the investments for the next three months as the, the market kind of lets us know what's going on. What do you think, Nathan? Do you think less companies means more stability for the Permian? Say you're on a schoolyard, Ryan. If you remove children from the schoolyard, there is less chaos there, but it becomes less interesting, too. It does, except for you have OPEC, which is only a handful of members, and that that's always pretty interesting. Of course, there's a yeah, lot of there's a lot of stuff not. there. But you know, from our listener standpoint, I mean, I think the thing that we try to do is is you know tell it like we see it, um, but also make sure that we're trying to read the news and go, okay, you know, this is what it's saying, but it, you know, is that really is that really what's going on, or is this just the headline of the day? And for me, I'm not saying it will go down to 20. I'm not saying it'll go down to 50. I don't I don't know, but. There is seems to be some narrative that as these companies go under, that it's going to be less things that are going out going on out there. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not sure because if the companies are bigger, you know, Walmart has a lot more stuff than the local grocery store because they have a lot more money and they're getting pitched on a lot more ideas. So it, it could be that the work volume actually increases. Oh, um, absolutely. And also, if the price goes down, um, someone like Exxon, let's say I'm, I'm throwing out numbers here. Let's say the price is at forty dollars a barrel. Exxon might be profitable because they could refine that, or XTL could be profitable because they could refine that product. So actually, it might not be as, as interesting on some level, as you're saying, but it also might mean more stability for folks in the industry, and that's what a lot of us want. So I'm not saying this is a hill I'm going to die on, but it just feels like there's a lot of doom and gloom, and I'm looking at it going, okay, well, uh, maybe I missed it here. So listeners, textonguestpodcast.com, tell us what we missed. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You're out there in the ground working for these companies. Would love to know what you think. The interesting thing is we've got Deloitte coming on again today, and some of the stuff they sent us over is going to be uh, pretty interesting, and so we'll get to them in just one second. All right. Uh, today we have a special guest, Tom Bonney. He's the Managing Director of Upstream Operations and Digital Leader at Deloitte Consulting, LLP. Tom, uh, great to have you on the show today, man. Look forward to uh, getting into some of this report that, that you guys released. Great. Looking forward to it as well. Okay, well, let's start with um, a topic that we've covered on the show from time to time, and it's an interesting debate, is Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3 acreage, you guys, and we'll, for the listeners, we'll be sure to link to this in the show notes. Um, you have some discussion about that, and um, first off, before we get into it, for listeners who aren't familiar with Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3 acreage, kind of break down at a high level uh, what that means, and we'll kind of get into some of the implications that we saw in y'all's report. Uh, sure thing. So at the, at the crux of it, when we're talking about Tier 1, Tier 3, it's basically the quality of the formation itself. Uh, we had our internal experts kind of classify that using different geological uh, data points, such as gamma ray, neutron, porosity, formation, thickness, et cetera, and then classified uh, across the, each of the, uh, the basins, Permian, as an example, into this one, two, and three, and one being the, uh, the top tier uh, that we saw. And the, the main thing was just this uh, 
it's kind of that starting to challenge and understand that notion of it's it's always about the rock and it's the quality of the rock. Well, uh, I think what our analysis started pointing out that you know the rock is important, uh, but also basically the well designs and how we tackle that is having a big factor on the uh, the results of the well. So one of the things we talked about on the show is uh, Mark Papa, former CEO of EOG, and I think Harold Ham as well is in this camp that. That the tier one acreage, um, if you will, is coming to an end, the ability to drill in tier one. But if I'm understanding what you're saying is, regardless of whether or not we have available tier one acreage, it, it shouldn't necessarily impact drilling moving forward. There's other things, as you alluded to, and we'll get to in a second, that will actually be the driver for um, production from wells in the future. Yeah, I think what uh, we see is there's still opportunity out there for sure. Uh, it's Shale has transformed the industry, uh, and we think there's more value to uh, to be able to extract from the wells. So when our analysis, what we did is we looked at over 80,000 wells worth of data. And that, that key finding is, you know, starting to cha- uh, challenge that general notion that uh, just investing in an established tier one acreage, drilling longer laterals, pumping more sand, et cetera, guarantees success. Uh, that it's just, you know, a linear formula, so to speak. And I think what we're seeing through the data is, yeah, before 2016, there was, there was a lot of data that supports that original notion. What we've seen since 2016 is, um, you know, how we peaked that general notion, and it's much more uh, about how we go after the designs, and we can do that differently across tier one, two, and three. As an example, what some of the analysis showed was that between 2016 and 2018, uh, 40% of the wells at the higher end of um, completion intensity delivered below average productivity relative to other wells. Uh, so again, it's about how do I balance that to make the overall economic return with the ultimate uh, aspect. And then the second thing was, this was in Delaware. Uh, what we saw was that 40% of the wells in non-tier one delivered over a thousand a day uh, IP 180 uh, relative to 45% of tier one wells that actually delivered under 1,000 barrel a day which to me comes to the, the fact that there is still an opportunity across the other areas, but it comes down to what is the overall economic benefit. It's not just about pushing productivity. Okay. One of the things you say in the report is that um, longer laterals, um, just to use that term, uh, actually led to diminished productivity. So w- that was a big thing, you know, how long, you know, there was always stories about these people drilled, drilled the longest lateral and then these people did. Um, w- w- why do you guys, when you say diminished capacity uh, productivity, what is it about the lateral that's doing that? Is it the, the ability of the team? Is it something in the, the nature of the longer lateral? Um, why are you, you seeing that? Uh I think this is where we still realize that uh, we have a lot more to learn in this type of uh, in, in unconventional in these types of basins uh, that we haven't reached the point yet where we fully understand everything about the rock and how it will work in these types of um, scenarios. So for us, it is when this is why when we started looking at it, uh, we saw that there was this trend of just pushing the longer lateral, but it wasn't always delivering the productivity that we thought. And we looked at one operator. Uh, who actually, what we saw in their data, what was interesting was that they were actually doing more unique designs across the basin, not always doing a longer lateral, in some areas doing a shorter lateral. And that to us kind of conveys the fact of if if I can learn more about the rock, what type of acreage I have, regardless of tier one, two or three, I designed uh, my well-designed parameters around that and use the data and the analytics to drive a better decision, uh, that will lead to potentially better results. 
but not everyone is taking that type of approach is what we're seeing. So a few weeks ago we had on David Blackman, Forbes contributor and Shell Mag editor, and he said that um, one of the things that he believes is that with conventional wells, you see that the, the skill to do that is, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, the skill to do that is a little bit easier than it is with these horizontal wells. Um, there's a comment in here, and based upon what you just said, I'm, I'm curious if this ties in. Um, you have a comment, and I'll, I'll quote from the piece here. It says, uh, a more balanced approach formation, I'm sorry, that's the wrong quote here. Um, Oh, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Deloitte found approximately 67% of, of wells in the Permian have been over, uh, under or over-engineered. So when, when we're talking about over or under-engineered, first, what exactly does that mean? Um, and then is that is that based upon, are you seeing this problem where one company might have um, over or under-engineered uh, wells? Or is it that, you know, if a company can do the well correctly, pretty much all their wells are done correctly, uh, and then if a company can't, they really struggle to keep the consistency and get, get uh, good engineered wells. I, I think the thing with the um, over-engineering, first off, is what, what our team did is we kind of did one of these cluster analysis to understand what does a popular design range look like, what does a good design range look like that yielded the best uh, results. And then within a degree, uh, if it's over, uh, you know, under delivering in profits, et cetera, like that, that would be under engineered. Over engineered would be we're putting more stuff uh, down the hole to, to frack the well, et cetera, uh, like that fluid and profits, et cetera. So that's how we classify the under and, and over. Uh, obviously, the, the challenge becomes is if we're under engineering, we're potentially leaving money on the table by not uh, delivering more productivity to the well. The counterbalance is an over engineering. Uh, the challenge becomes we're probably we might be spending more money than we need to for the value that we're going to get from the well. So that's where it's more designing what is an optimal range and using our your, your analytics and data to better inform what that is. It doesn't mean just keep driving to a, a longer lateral and that will deliver the productivity, which will offset any additional cost. But what we saw in, in that regard, obviously, is um, according to our analysis, there's about 45% of the wells in Permian and Eagle for that are over-engineered. And so then the question becomes, if we're seeing a weakening relationship between completion intensity and productivity, and then therefore there's a higher cost associated with these over-engineered wells, is this part of the reason why we see some of the industry's balance sheet not being where we'd like it to be? Okay, and on that, you, you guys concluded that approximately $24 billion could be at stake for optimization. So if we can solve some of these issues, the industry, the Permian and Eagleford especially, could reduce uh, capital requirements by $24 billion. And as we see headlines, Wall Street not wanting to invest, um, you know, capital, uh, uh, paying dividends, returns are, are key. $24 billion is a nice start and a, <laughs> and a good, and a good, and a good uh, way to head the right direction, it sounds like. Uh, absolutely. Now, you know, nothing in this world is easy. It's going to take people to be more, much more conscious around how we attack it. I think what we're seeing is some of the ways that we believe operators can start delivering on that $24 billion is one is we need to continuously challenge traditional ways of working and understand how we can apply digital to that. Uh, we need to bring specificity around analytics. So, you know, a statistical integration of our geological data, our engineering, our productivity data, to basically clarify which are the specific factors that are influencing productivity and cost uh, most strongly. Then this, you know, we've always talked about, hey, how do we do a manufacturing approach? Or then we also love this experimentation approach. Well, actually, we need to start doing what I would call is more like an agile manufacturing, which is we're balanced between repeatability of a manufacturing style 
uh, and with the benefits of experimentation. So basically, in certain areas, we realize there's no more gain to be had, so we drive efficiency through standardization. In other areas, we're going to find out there's a few factors that still drive meaningful potential performance improvements, so we use those to be the experimentation angle. But, uh, you know, I have an example from an operator I was working with, you know, um, last year where they had two wells side by side and they had different bottom hole assemblies. Why? Because of different engineers who thought they wanted to do something different. Well, that drives a cost difference. Those same types of wells, they had different completion design. Why? Because individuals, I'm sure, are making right, understandable choices, believing that is the best. But that degree of experimentation and changing and all that drives the cost, which is what we want to balance out against what we think the additional productivity is. So uh, the fourth element, though, is also how we work with our, you know, oil field service companies and this habit of, uh, you know, how can we better collaborate and create more of a win-win environment? I think these four things combined are some of the elements that are going to help us really deliver on that $24 billion. Okay, final thing. There's a handful of ways that we could share technology. So you could have employees leaving from one company to the next. You could have companies that are merging or getting bought out. Um, you could have um, companies who are hiring consulting firms, uh, people like yourself. Or you could have companies that are voluntarily sharing information. Um, obviously, in our industry, sharing information, understandably so, has been something that's been a lot of pushback. Um, where we are now, do we feel like that might shift? Companies need to improve, uh, improve productivity. Do we feel like, okay, you know what? Hey, we got to get this thing done right and got it done cheaper. Will we see people move towards uh, maybe sharing notes or comparing notes um, to make sure they can improve productivity? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question and one that we've been um, constantly battling with. Uh, what what I'd say is we're doing this uh digital maturity benchmark survey at the moment and we're chatting with different operators and getting their perspective on things and this is actually one of the questions we have asked uh if i think back to the downturn you know there i I knew different operators who were like in a basin creating a mini consortium and hey it's on the production side so how do we how are you guys driving efficiencies how are you managing your routes how are you managing your hauling etc like that and they shared information uh, the secret sauce has always been that, you know, subsurface and how I go after that. And that's where they've been more hesitant to. As we've been doing this survey, what's been interesting is they, um, uh, most of them are saying, I think we should, I think we can. It's not about the data itself. It's what I do with the data and the insights I deliver. So that I think the attitude, there's a little bit of a shift coming. I don't think anyone's you know it's going to be one of those of can i really trust you're giving me the right type of information (laughs) Uh, but through some that we've interviewed some have said we have and others are saying we're willing to we would think about it which is different than a few years ago when i think everyone had said no we're not sharing anything Okay, great. We've talked a lot about this report, which we'll link to in the show notes. Listeners can get that on iTunes, Spotify, com. We have not talked about your core business. Why don't you tell everyone who's not familiar with Deloitte uh, what you guys do, what services you offer, and where they can connect with you offline? Uh, sure. So, uh, obviously, we're a management consulting firm. Uh, I'm within our consulting practice where we offer a variety of types of uh, consulting services, depending what you're doing, anything from you know, traditional strategy to how do I transform and improve operations to, you know, how do I operate and maintain, uh, you know, back office and front office things differently than what I have. Myself, I, I play up in the digital space. 
I am not a digital person by trade. It's more operations, but you don't do anything in operations today without talking about how you buy digital. And the big focus there is around how do I shift traditional ways of working, and then I leverage digital to better enable that. Ultimately, it's all about driving better, faster, and you know safer decisions and actions out in the field. Okay, well, that is great. And the website is one more time? Assuming we're recording, but I think it's www.deloitte.com. And through there, you can find uh, links to the article. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for coming on. For the listeners, we will put a link to the report and everything else you need to know about Deloitte in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Tom, thank you. Thank you, Abe, for setting this up. And uh, it was good to get you guys back on again. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Tom Bonney for coming on the show today to uh, break down that report. Lots of interesting stuff there. Uh, with that, we have our Texas Roundup. Uh, some news came out. This was October 23rd. Caterpillar reports earnings that badly missed the street. Cuts forecast again. So uh, Caterpillar's per share uh, was down. And so they're uh, less than optimistic about uh, some of the, the growth that they were expecting for the year. Range Resources tax on another multi-million dollar royalty sale. We'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, and last but not least, Texas Supreme Court decide epic legal battle between enterprise and energy transfer. I don't know if anyone has followed this story. Back in 2014, uh, this story uh, was making headlines. And um, for some reason, uh, the, the verdict was overturned, and now it's going to the uh, Texas Supreme Court. So not sure the details there. Uh, something to keep an eye on. We'll link to this also in the show notes for you to uh keep keep uh keep an eye on with that ryan uh i think that wraps up the show today we just need to make sure we get nate wet in the lake nate, lots the and lots lake. of reviews lots of three reviews. of us wet 20 24 24 is a magic number and 46 will, so 46 you've got so listen just to put it clear by the time we record we'll be coordinating uh, next thursday again because of my travel schedule so that's a long time to get in the reviews, we should be able to hit 200 by next time, and then we can call it off. Call it off. We can yeah. call it off. Absolutely we don't need, we don't, not. We don't need to get to 225. Nope, so five star reviews. Keep getting the reviews. And uh, you know we haven't we haven't talked about the Mount uh, Mount Rushmore quest in a long time, and we'll get back to that. This is more important, people. We need late uh, Nate in the lake. Uh, thank you for helping us do that. And he, we might go in if we get to 199. We're not going to lay him off, are we? We'll yes. Uh, you said 200. Russian bots. Russian bots. Yeah, we'll get, we'll, kinda, we'll Russian get bots might interfere in this election, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying you might have some outside interference going on if it's if it's, if it's it's contested. Uh, no hanging chads, nothing like that. It will be a, It's going to go down. I'm just saying. I know how to use Fiverr, too, you guys. <laughs> so, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep flying.